Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Bad Advice Edition of Slate Money, your weekly guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and on the show this week, breakups, not the personal, but the corporate kind. Then, how the history of the financial crisis is being rewritten, or at least litigated, at the ongoing trial of AIG, and a personal finance question, courtesy of a dedicated listener in the Catskills. And, of course, at the end, our usual numbers lightning round. I'm joined by regular guest Kathy O'Neill, data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. Hi, Kathy. And the entrepreneur, gadfly, amazing tweeter, and I'm not quite sure what else you do, Anil Dash. Hello, Felix. What's your... What is your main thing these days? These days, I'm doing a startup called ThinkUp, uh, which has been a lot of fun to be working on. I get, I get emails. What is it daily? Yeah, from yeah. from ThinkUp saying choose, yeah. you have been favorited nine times a minute, and I'm like, wow. Yeah. Well, that's because you're good at Twitter. Or once every nine minutes, I think. Let's not let's not exaggerate here. Either one of those sounds plausible. <laughs> but start us off, Anil. Well, tell us about. Um, Breaking up is apparently quite easy to do these days. Apparently it is. Well, one of the great things about tech is you have the all kinds of behaviors that come back into fashion. You know, as I was saying, hemlines go up and hemlines go down, and 
this happens with products, but also this happens with actual business structures. So uh, whereas it was in vogue to just buy any random thing and roll it up into a giant company uh, eight years ago or 10 years ago, now we have the inevitable cleaving. So Hewlett Packard is splitting in two, uh, sadly not into Hewlett and Packard, which would be the <laughs> obvious choice to make there. Uh, Symantec is talking about divesting itself of its uh, Veritas storage acquisition, which happened about 10 years ago. Um, and then the other company is the one that has Norton Antivirus and nags you about things. Uh, eBay is going to spin out PayPal, uh, which I thought they already had, but no, I guess that isn't true. Uh, and so it's just a really great time for companies to be responding to investors by saying, oh, what the hell, why don't we try this? Let's split in two. And eBay, of course, previously spun out Skype, right, which right. was then reintegrated into Microsoft. Right. And, and that'll spin out in a few years, too. It's great. It's, like it's just these little sort of loose agglomerations of things that come and go. And you think this is a, a fashion thing? You know, obviously, there's investor pressure. There are a lot of the, you know, the hedge fund guys and the activists that are saying, well, we're going to unlock a lot of value if we split these up. And particularly in the case of something like uh, uh, EMC spinning out VMware or, or Symantec spinning out Veritas. These were acquisitions that were never integrated, right? They took five, eight, ten years, and they still remained two companies, and I think they're just acknowledging, well, that didn't work. Uh, <laughs> and so you have regime change, and the new CEO goes in and kind of just points out the obvious, well, we never, we never actually integrated. So it's not merely fashion, but the reason that they're willing to sort of all at once, and this is what three companies in a week making these announcements, some of whom share the same investors and, you know, kind of activists paying attention to them, it's clearly also this moment to say, well, this is a thing it's okay to do right now. Kathy, do you, do you have a feel for why the activists might all be pushing breakup trades right now? Well, yes. I mean, I have, I have a couple things to say. Like, the first thing to say is that it's cover- for two things. First of all, firing a bunch of people. So mm -hmm. I guess 55,000 people are being laid off by HP. Mm -hmm. And um, I just want to also throw in that when I was working at Risk Metrics, we got um, acquired by MSCI. And that's, you know, mergers or acquisitions, they're also excuses to fire a bunch of people. Yeah. yeah. So I just, like, first of all, I kind of feel like what's going on, tell me if you disagree, is that, first of all, corporate executives are essentially financial engineers at this point. Like mm -hmm. they, they work with Wall Street financial engineers to figure out how do we, you know, extract money and give it to me and you but and me. Right. Um, and then we also get sack a bunch of people and make it seem like we're doing something for our shareholders. And that it, that seems like the, the cover story here. Yeah, certainly the none of these of whether, CEOs are, are Steve Jobs saying, let's invent some products and get our way out of this. That's not, right. that's not the right. case. Right. So and then the question of why breakups now and not mergers that does seem to be cyclical. Um, it seemed uh, um, that right after the financial crisis, people wanted to like hold on to what they had. Mm -hmm. And now it's time to like break up things and see what happens and let certain things fail that are doomed to fail and other things. So, so this is a theme which I'm going to come back to later in the show. But I think actually what we're seeing here is a little bit of monetary policy and Fed monetary policy taking effect. Mm. Um, that... As you say, in the, in the wake of the financial crisis, there was a kind of consolidation. And consolidation happens when you get mergers and you bring everything together and you have one big back office, you have one investor relations team, one HR team, and they look after everyone. And you save money by consolidating companies and consolidating businesses. But now... Capital is abundant, liquidity is abundant, and what investors want is not so much companies saving money by bringing everything into one place, but they want 
to be able to buy very specific risks. So they say, I want PayPal and I don't want eBay. And I don't want to be forced to buy eBay if what I really want is PayPal or vice versa. So, so is, let's split this up. This is like all the high-end restaurants moving to small plates, right? We're not going to actually just give you an entree size. We're going to give you a bunch of small plates and you can share them. Exactly. So, I mean, I think in, in a way it's it's good because you can isolate individual risks, individual businesses. You can see how they're doing a bit more easily. And it does cost a bit more to have you know 2,000 companies than 1,000 companies, but maybe it's worth it perhaps. Yeah, I mean, from the perspective of the investor, I do think it makes sense. Um, in the sense although, that- although, theoretically, and um, James Quirk made this point on Medium this week, theoretically, that's actually not true. All investors care about, in theory, is cash flows. And, you know, if you aggregate the cash flows, you know, you want to save money. You should be happier with a slightly cheaper combination of eBay and PayPal than with two separately. Well, first of all, I'm not completely convinced that it's that much cheaper to have two different, very different kinds of companies in one company. I, I've, I haven't actually seen that happen in real life. I've seen, you know, especially when it's merging, it just takes so long to actually get the systems to merge and stuff. Um, but, you know, let's just take it as an example of the HP split because like, they have the idea of, of splitting it into the printer's on one hand, and the service on the other, which I'm simplifying a little bit. I'm just, as an investor, I might imagine, and by the way, just as a caveat, as a person working there, this is not good news. So no, let's yeah. just keep that in mind. Workers, this sucks for workers. Yeah, all of these suck for workers, for sure. Yeah, I just, I don't want to underemphasize that. But as an investor, I might have a certain feeling, medium term, about what was going to happen with HP printers. I will have a different feeling, medium or long term, about what's going to happen with consulting services for the government or something that right. who knows what the HP services are going to do. And that brings us to things like the Obama healthcare website rollout. I mean, are, are they talking about that kind of consulting services, in which case, you know, they don't work very well, but they're, they're going to keep happening. So, you know, you could have a different long term look at that than you have at printers, and then you could make your bets se- separately. And this is really HP just following the IBM playbook. You know, IBM used to be known as this company which makes computers. And then they sold all of the bits which make computers to China. And now they're a much bigger company than the company which used to make computers. But no one has a clue what they actually do. No, no. They're in every category of things that people don't understand. (laughs) But so I guess, yeah, this is just trendiness. Um, the, The one company which just I never ceases to be able to spin things off is Time Warner. (laughs) <laughs> well, see, th- thank you for bringing that up, because I believe that Time Warner spun something off recently just to let it die. Isn't oh, it's called Time Inc. Yes, yes. the magazine. Ouch. That's, right. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, one thing you could say about HP is that they don't seem to be doing that. They're not trying to, like, no, actually they, kill they, off a right. company. Yeah, they think these are viable businesses. I mean, I, one of the things I, am, I actually am struck by is the signifiers of the names. Right. So, so Symantec has said that the security company, which is what they always were, that remains is going to be called Symantec. And the new company, we don't know the name. And if you have a spinoff that is like this one division, we haven't given it a name, our CEO's not going with it, like what, what clearer signifier of, well, we got rid of that thing could there be? And then HP is this like, well, one company's called HP and one's called Hewlett Packard Enterprise. That shouldn't be confusing at all. And, <laughs> well, and, it's a bit like the difference between Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola Enterprises, which no one ever <laughs> understood. And, and I have to mention that Slate Money is owned by 
the company which used to be called the Washington Post Company before it spun off the Washington Post mm-hmm. to, to Jeff Bezos. And now it's called Graham Holdings. So, right. you know, whatever that means. Oh, so, that, that's at least descriptive, right? <laughs> There's a thing that's there. There's a name for it. It's it not, sounds like a cracker to me. That's but. true. That's fair. In any case, um, we are going to move on, Kathy, to yes. the big court case of the week. Yeah, so... AIG got bailed out in 2008, maybe a couple days after Lehman fell, maybe a week after Lehman fell. And they did something kind of weird with AIG. Well, a couple of things that were weird. But one of the things is that the government started owning 80% of AIG and and gave it pretty serious details on how it would have to pay back the money. And a lot of that money went to other banks. So we a lot of people have re- referred to this as the backdoor bailout of Goldman Sachs, for example, which... Wait, so let, let's just have a quick little bit of history here because yeah. otherwise it's going to be very hard to follow. Yeah. On the weekend that Lehman Brothers failed, yes. September 15, 2008, um, Lehman Brothers was famously not bailed out. It was allowed to go bankrupt. That's but right. there was an even bigger and more systemically important company which was bailed out, which is the insurance company AIG. And the money which was used to bail out AIG yes. wound up eventually flowing to a bunch of banks like Goldman Sachs, but was a loan to AIG from the government. That's right. And the interest rates on that loan was insanely high. Right. Was over 14%. And what that meant was that once AIG had paid back the interest on that loan, there was no money left for shareholders. And so, Kathy, bring us up to speed on why what what is happening now with the lawsuit. Right. So, What's going on now is Hank Greenberg, who had been the CEO of AIG before the bailout and was the like biggest shareholder, was really pissed about how the how it became a loan instead of a real bailout and how how the shareholders got mostly wiped out. So he got mostly wiped out during that loan, whereas other banks got totally bailed out. And he's like, why did we get unpreferential treatment versus the other banks that were bailed out during the crisis? And so he's suing to get $40 billion dollars. Um, from the government because... That, that's 40 billion yes. with a B. That's right. Sure. And like nobody, nobody, nobody wants Hank Greenberg to get $40 billion for the government except Hank Greenberg. But what's been interesting about the trial is that we've had like all these people like Bernanke um, come and talk about what actually happened in those days mm. and um, kind of admit that there there was weird, weirdly inconsistent rulings on how bailouts would occur in, in those weeks. That's exciting. I mean, I, I think to be able to find out what the hell were they thinking, especially well, you mentioned, you know, the sort of collapse happens on a weekend and we were finding out after the fact what was happening. Right? Yesterday they decided, I remember hearing this in the news, yesterday they decided this this would happen and today, you know, here's a check being written or here's a loan being made. That was, I think that's extraordinary, this idea of kind of going back in the lens. And then anybody who's kind of saying, hey, listen, I'm owed $40 billion is just on pure sort of entertainment value. It's like, I want to see that. I don't want them to get $40 billion, but I want to watch that. It, it's certainly entertaining to see a bunch of former masters of the universe sitting in the dock in court giving testimony this week. Literally in one week, we had Hank Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary, followed by Tim Geithner, the f- former head of the New York Fed at the time, and then, obviously, as we all know, Treasury Secretary, followed by Ben Bernanke, the guy who was chairman of the Fed the whole time, in the dock giving evidence about this. And it's it's wonderful to see these guys. And it's also wonderful 
to be able to see Hank Greenberg come in during the discovery process and force a whole bunch of testimony and a whole bunch of documents to come out. And, you know, for all that none of us really particularly think that Hank Greenberg deserves $40 billion, Mm -hmm. the fact is that he does have a couple of points Mm -hmm. here, that AIG was deliberately bailed out in as punitive a manner as possible. It was nationalized by the government. The government basically confiscated it from its shareholders, or at least 79.9% of it, and made sure that the rump 20% holding, which was owned by Hank Greenberg and others, would basically get nothing ever. Mm-hmm. And they did the same thing with Fannie and Freddie. So it should, it should be said that, you know, it's not a coincidence that this has happened right after Lehman. Like, we just talked last week, I believe, about how, you know, part of the Lehman fall was possibly appointed rebuke from the regulators like Bernanke that, no, we don't want to bail everyone out like we bailed out Bear Stearns. We want people to learn a lesson. And mm-hmm. that seemed to be the mood for the first few days after Lehman, in particular while AIG was being negotiated. It still seemed like, no, we're going to be hard-ass about this. We're gonna, and, we, and we can't not bail out AIG, but we, we're going to be hard-ass about it. And by the way, speaking of we can't not bail out AIG, another thing that's come up in this trial is that there were actually offers to buy parts of AIG coming from China and from the Middle East. And there was also $20 billion available in some kind of special fund from a New York regulator. Well, well, the $20 billion was $20 billion of AIG's own money, which it needed to hold in reserve to pay New York policyholders. And the New York state regulator, doing his kind of greater good thing, said, well, New York state policyholders are important, and we want to make sure that they get paid, but we also want to make sure that AIG exists. So if you really need this money or to borrow some of this money, you can. And the reaction of the Fed to all of these things, from China, from the Middle East, and from the New York state, was basically, eh, we don't really believe that the market's going to trust this, and this is if we don't just come in and completely do this ourselves. Also, I think um, you're absolutely right. They wanted to make uh, an example of AIG. They wanted Mm -hmm. to nationalize it and and be as punitive as possible. And that, in hindsight, would have been more acceptable if subsequent bailouts or, you know, the TARP program and all of the money that got injected into Citigroup and Bank of America and other insolvent institutions hadn't been so generous to the banks. So that's the question is there was this sort of intention to put the fear of God into them by like, look at the example we made AIG. Do we think that worked? I mean, do we think the other banks were like, OK, we better get in line because it doesn't seem like no, it did well, at all. And, and e- even that is a false question in in the sense that they were not generous to AIG, but they were generous to Goldman Sachs because mm-hmm. the famous thing was, and this goes back to the, what, what actually brought down AIG, which was credit default swaps. Um, AIG wrote a bunch of credit default swaps that Goldman owned. And through the bailout, Goldman got all the money, 100% mm-hmm. of the money that they could have gotten from the sale of credit default swaps. There was no haircut. So when we say that they were mean or they were kind of tough on AIG, at the same exact moment, they were not tough mm-hmm. on Goldman Sachs and the other banks that got bailout through AIG's bailout. So is this about personalities? Are they like, this is what Hank wants or what we want to do with Hank? Like, is this is this like a response to who these people are or is it just... It, it, is, it is in large part. that. And Hank Paulson, we can't ignore the fact, used to be the CEO of, of Goldman Sachs. And um, and the banks are the people on the board of the New York Fed. The New York Fed exists to look after the banking system. Mm-hmm. And it's 
first job is to care about banks, and then it realized that the banks could get brought down by this non-bank AIG, and so mm. it came in and it saved the banks by being punitive to AIG. And I think mm-hmm. for all that none of us really believe that, that Hank Greenberg deserves his um, $40 billion, the whole bailout was very messy. It was mm-hmm. messy. We can't, we can't deny that. It was a political shit show, basically. Right. And that's how <laughs> property rights got decided by politics. And then finally, last week I mentioned that we might have a little bit of personal finance content on this show. And this was cause for a few scared emails. Um, listeners, don't worry. I am not going to be sitting here telling you that you should use the money in your CD to pay off your credit cards or that kind of thing because that's not an area we want to go into. But we did have an interesting email from a listener in the Catskills, and I think it's worth talking about maybe just this once. And he asks, basically, he's one of these happy, lucky people who has extra savings, a bit of money to invest. And he says that he doesn't like mutual funds. Like You can understand that. It feels just like a scam to make mutual fund companies richer. And the stock market looks expensive. And the question he has is, if you have a bit of money, not retirement money, but just a bit of extra cash lying around, and you need to invest it for the time being, what do you do with it? So I have an answer to this, but first of all, I want to ask Anil because he's not. A oh goodness! I'm, yeah, I'm, I have I have the worst I have the worst perspective on this. Um, interestingly, like, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I work in tech, and I have I'm like pathologically conservative about these things, like to the point where my wife chides me. So I'm definitely that person that's like index fund, drop it in there, sit and wait a couple decades, which is this like the safe, rational, sane answer. Uh, part of me wants to be like gamble it all away. You know, there's this this high uh, risk, but I you know it isn't isn't it compulsory for people like you to make constant angel investments in your friends' companies? No, well, this is an interesting thing. I I actually I got on a list in this, a Business Insider list, so of course that means what it means. Uh, that was like top 100 angels in New York at a, uh, a point last year, I think, at a point where I have never made an angel investment in my life. This is true. And, and so I thought, what are your like? What are the credentials for this list? There, there must be none. And and then, of course, the exception was I had one company, a friend's company, that I did make, write a very small check to because they they asked me to, and I thought that would be an interesting idea. But of all the things to put money into, I was very like I was hand wringing over it, and it was not a substantial enough you know amount of money to be that worried about it. So I I think don't do what I do, which is you know <laughs> under the mattress. Uh, is my but, default. But it, when you say index funds, you are actually investing in stocks. So sure. it's not that no, but conservative. It's a, it, but right, but there's an, an, a layer of abstraction and a time scale that mitigates a lot of the, the risk. Kathy. Okay, so first of all, I'd like to preface my remarks by saying don't listen to anyone about this. Um, because <laughs> it's, they, it's very good advice. Extremely good advice. Almost always have some kind of money angle on you. Um Next thing I want to mention is that most people don't have enough money. Mm-hmm. I mean, like 30% of people's net value is negative mm-hmm. in this country. So it's it it's an elitist question by construction. Yeah, to um, not be living paycheck to paycheck at all is, is quite privileged. Yeah, right, exactly. The next thing is like the next level up are people who have some kind of 401ks that, you know, they don't really have money, money, but they have 401ks. Usually that means they probably have their money invested already through a mutual fund. 
that's probably give, taking money off from you that doesn't need to be taken from you. Um, but it might not be it, it might not be too bad it, depending on which mutual fund you have. So um, I think of personally, I don't invest. When I, when I did invest any amount of money, which was the money I'm trying to save for college for my kids, I put it in an ETF, which is an index fund, just like um, Anil was mentioning. And then I got scared at exactly the wrong moment, took it all out, and mm. now it's just sitting in the bank, earning zero amount of um, interest. But the the great thing about it is I don't have to worry that it's going away entirely. And the other thing is I do have some 401k money, so I'm sort of hedging my bets. So I guess what I'm saying is, like, if you're an average American, you don't have any money. If you're a well-off American like myself but not a rich person – then your money is liquidity. Your concern should be liquidity. So do I have the actual cash to do what I want to do in a given moment? And I don't have to worry about the market. And then the question is, do I also have a hedge against the market? Because what if the market doubles and doubles and doubles like every decade, then I really am screwed because, you know, inflation. So I think in terms of like risk aversion. So this is, this is all very sensible. And, but I do need to say that if you're saving for your kid's college, the New York State 529 plan, mm-hmm. um, which allows you to save for college, is extremely good, and you should avail yourself of it. I would agree with everything that Kathy said and add, well, one, I would say that you're right about you need the liquidity first. So make sure you have six months' worth of expenses in cash, just where you don't need to worry about it in in, your, in a savings account somewhere. And then the second point is, again, I want to come back to monetary policy. That what we've seen from the Fed is just this massive injection of liquidity into the economy, of money into the economy. So money is not scarce anymore. There's lots of it sloshing around. Now, we know that it hasn't trickled down to most Americans, but if what you're doing is investing in the markets, then you're investing in somewhere where there's lots of money. And what the Fed is doing is it's trying to encourage people like our listener, people with investments to make, to do one of two things. The first thing is, look, you know, if you want some income from this money, there's very few investments you can make which generate any real kind of interest or income. The one thing which you can do is buy property and rent it out. You can get a good sort of 4 5 6% return by doing that. And so... One of the things that the Fed is encouraging people like our listener in the gas girls to do is to go out and buy property and help support the property market that way. And then the other thing that they're implicitly encouraging people to do, and this is actually my answer to the question of what do I do with this excess money that I have, is go out and spend it. Enjoy yourself. Go on holiday. <laughs> like Buy experiences. Buy stuff. This is the whole point of reducing interest rates is it makes spending money relatively more attractive and investing money relatively less attractive. And the fact is that if you're in this lucky position of having excess cash, then there's a strong case to be made, especially now, to not save it and to go out and enjoy yourself because, you know, you can always get run over by a bus tomorrow. I'll just add one thing, which is um, I agree with you. You should spend it and you should tip really well. <laughs> I'll just throw that in. That, you know, the market is not efficient, but you do not know. <laughs> you, listener, do not know why it's exactly how it's not efficient. There are thousands of people who spend all their, their time basically trying to weasel out insider information about the market. And it's not a smart idea. And, you know, maybe... I shouldn't say this because I don't want to give advice. This sounds like negative advice is a kind of advice. But like 
it, you know, you don't know more about Apple mm-hmm. than people on the inside of the market. That's all, I'm going to f- stop there. Yeah. Well, there's a wonderful, because we can't go a podcast without saying nice things about Matt Levine. Matt Levine has a wonderful piece on Bloomberg View about Carl Icahn's letter to Apple, where Carl Icahn is giving advice to Apple and saying, <laughs> you might be coming out with a television. And if you are, that will be good for your stock. And Matt's like, I think Apple knows whether or not they're coming out with a television rather more than you do, Carl. I, I love your advice here because the the idea of go out and have fun meshes really well with the the best bad advice I got from my father, who was you know an immigrant and and, and immigrant parents love to give their kids bad inappropriate advice. <laughs> and one of them, he said, I remember very distinctly being a teenager, and he said, "What you should do when you get a job is spend all your money because that way you'll have to make more." <laughs> and and it's. At some level, it's kind of true, right? And so I, I think that that really matches really well with your particular bad advice, which is if you're already living in the Catskills and you've got extra money lying around, yeah, go on a trip, have some fun, have a nice dinner. Yes, food and wine. Next week, we'll be talking to John Lanchester, who has a great new book out called How to Speak Money, but is also a great epicure. So I think... In honor of him, please, listeners, this week, crack open a good bottle of wine, take yourself out to a nice restaurant, spend a bit of money, and help boost the economy that way. Um, Kathy. Yes. What's your number this week? So my number is 56,000, Felix. Um, it's the number of homeless people we have in New York City. That's a depressing number, It Kathy. is an all-time high. Um, there's 24,000 homeless children in the city. And I just want to throw in, I know this is, I've already said two numbers, I'm going to say a third. There are 103 billionaires in New York City, also at all-time high, and the largest number of billionaires of any city in this world. That's just horrible. Can you cheer us up, Anil? Uh No, I have an <laughs> equally challenging number, which is uh, 1.5 million, which is a number of uh, unemployed work-age African-American women in America. And it's a number that I was stunned by, not because I was vaguely unaware of it, but because I don't hear it. Uh, and it's the number I wanted to hear people talking about because there is just a huge pool of talent that we're not tapping into. So that's something that um, I think anytime we can sort of be repeating and amplifying is really important. Okay. I do have a happier number. Well, okay, hang on a second. I'm going to come up with my number, and then we'll give Anil the last word with his happy number, because mine, mine is a bit wonky, actually. My number is 415,000. But in order to understand it, you first need to know that just a few years ago, uh, the number of rail cars of crude oil, which were transported by rail in the United States, was 9,500. That number has now increased to 415,000. There is a, this massive That's crazy. amount of oil just being transported by rail around America. And it's causing, because the rail freight companies own the tracks rather than Amtrak, what it means is they, they give priority to the big money oil cars. That explains so how long it takes to get to New it Haven. Really does. Mm-hmm. It really does. Amtrak is just being constantly delayed. There are lines on Amtrak which are typically five or six hours delayed mm. because it, the amount of oil being shipped around the country by rail. So, Anil, what is your happy number? My happy number is two. And two is how many companies you should make if you have one company today. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when the board of directors really loves themselves, what they do is they create little baby companies. 
<laughs> anyway, I think that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening to Slate Money. If you liked the show, subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And if you like it, leave a review. And do keep on writing to us with your questions and comments and complaints. Anything else, the address, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. Our producer for Slate Money this week was Stan Alcorn. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Anil Dash and Kathy O'Neill, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.